Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Our text for our sermon is Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. With a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, during the early weeks of the Easter season, we focus on those resurrection appearances that Jesus made to believers, to the 11 disciples, and to the wider group of disciples. In fact, we even find out that before he ascended, he had appeared to over 500 witnesses. And all that witness is to show this wasn't some kind of mass psychosis where people thought, uh, I'd like to see the risen Lord, and they kind of talked each other into thinking that they'd seen the risen Lord. It happened on different occasions with different people. God and Jesus slept, for example, Thomas, which we covered last week uh, in last week's pericope, last gospel lesson, stick his hands in the nail holes and in his side. So our gospel lesson for this week focuses on when Jesus appears, when Peter and, and, and some of the guys, Peter says, I'm going fishing because they're waiting for Jesus to come to Galilee, and he appears to them there. And... Uh, but of those guys who saw him then, of the disciples, we all know by tradition, church history, that every one of them dies a martyr's death, except John. Oh, John is not spared persecution, though. John is literally in his 90s. When the Roman government, which is persecuting Christians, remember it began with John's brother, James, when Herod's, uh, uh, when, when Herod, Herod the Great's relatives, Herod, uh, has James killed, and, and he like, it, it impressed some of the Jewish people. And what I mean by that is the Sanhedrin and stuff. And, and so uh, it, it gave him a fervor to persecute Christians. But most of the disciples uh, will suffer at the hands of the Roman government that's trying to stomp out this movement. And John's not spared that at 90 years old, he is exiled on the island of Patmos. Now, John, by the grace of God, will outlive his exile. But at night, when the sun had gone down, he could look across that sea and he could see the lights, it would be candle lights, of the city of Ephesus, which was about 12 miles away, and long for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's while he's in exile that Christ appears to him and gives him the vision that we call revelation. It's a revelation. It's like a mural of the salvation history. And in that salvation history, the theme of the book of Revelation is there'll be wars, rumors of wars, famines, plagues, and the true invisible church of God sticking to the word of God will be persecuted. Many people will be led astray, but it will be victorious because Christ has already won the victory. And so it is that John himself gets to see one last time the resurrected Lord, literally like 60 years after the last time he had seen Jesus, before Jesus ascended into heaven. And so today's sermon theme covers exactly what he saw and what was being sung about that resurrected Lord. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Why is Christ called the Lamb here? And to answer that, we have to take ourselves back to remember John and Peter's brother Andrew were the first two disciples to follow Jesus. They had been disciples of John the Baptist. And after John the Baptist had baptized Jesus, and John and Peter might have, or John and Andrew might have been there that day. But uh, when Jesus comes walking by later, after he'd been out in the desert and tempted by the, the Holy Spirit and everything, 
John points him out, John the Baptist, to John and Andrew and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when you and I hear that, we often think of the Passover Lamb. Jesus was celebrating the Passover when he, cel when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And the big reason why we think of the Passover Lamb is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Father and the Holy Spirit, set that up to be kind of an object lesson of Christ's coming. See, no bones were broken on that. It was roasted whole. None of it was to be left overnight. And ultimately, though, the first Passover that was celebrated was when the Israelites were still slaves in Egypt. It was their last night in Egypt. And God was going to send the last plague, which would be every, in every house, the firstborn male among the cattle and among the humans was going to be put to death. Unless the Jewish people celebrating the Passover feast there in Egypt, if they, that when they had slaughtered their Passover lamb, they were to put its blood over the door frame of their house. And when the avenging angel of the Lord passed by and saw that blood, he would not kill the firstborn in those houses. Well, with Christ's blood upon you and I, our sins are forgiven and God passes over us with his holy just wrath against sin. That's what you and I think of. But for the disciple John, for the disciple Andrew, for John the Baptist, probably what they thought of was the first sacrifice of every morning in the temple. When they opened up the temple gates, there was a lamb that was paid for out of the temple treasury, and it was slaughtered to atone for the sins that the nation of Israel had committed that night. And then the next lamb they probably thought of was probably the last sacrifice right before they closed the temple at night. That was another lamb that was paid for out of the treasury of the nation of Israel to atone for the sins that had happened since that morning. And I'm sure they also thought of the Passover lamb. Now, the other interesting thing is, is uh, John uses a tense that if we translate it literally is very ear jarring to the ears. Worthy is the lamb who has been slain. Now, that's the perfect tense in the Greek language that John was inspired to write on. I don't want to get into a big grammar lesson and bore you. But when you hear has been slain, the perfect tense in the Greek language means it happened in the past and it has an ongoing result. So it should jar our ears. Wait a minute. Jesus isn't dead. He made so many of these appearances. And here he is. John's in his 90s appearing to, to John. So why would we say has been slain? That seems to mean he continues to remain slain. Shouldn't it have been the pluperfect tense, which would say who had been slain and make it sound like, but it's no longer the case. But it jars our ears because there is an ongoing result. That lamb has been slain. Now he is alive again with the ongoing result that your and my sins are daily covered in the blood of that lamb and his death and resurrection are daily ours because we're connected to him by our new man. So that means there's an ongoing result of redemption, salvation, forgiveness, and everything. So we see worthy is the lamb. What all's meant there about that lamb being slain? But first it says to receive power. Now, we got to recognize that Jesus Christ, when he took on human flesh, you know, the Holy Spirit knit his body there in the Virgin Mary without the ingredients that, are, that, that is supplied usually by a biological father. Jesus set aside the powers of his godhood. He had access to them but he didn't let it shine out and make full use of them. So he literally has to pass through the birthing canal after being incubated for nine months. He didn't let all of his godly power and strength shine through. We see glimpses of it when he does miracles. And we even see a glimpse of it when he says he, before his crucifixion, I could call on legions of angels, but he doesn't. He holds back the power of his godhood so that he could be your and my substitute. And yet by that very power, He's able to atone for all the sins of the world 
and all of your sins and all of my sins. And he's able to be abandoned by God in a way that nobody else could be so that you and I never need to know what it's like to be abandoned by God. But he's ascended. He's back on the throne. He's taken up that godly power again. He's making full use of it. And he's ruling over all creation to bring you to and keep you in your faith. And he's ruling over all creation. Those things you and I grumble about. Lord, why is this health issue so bad? Lord, why can't I get ahead at work? Lord, why this issue? He is still sitting on his throne ruling and he's using that for your good or else he would not allow you to suffer that hardship. Sometimes we forget that and we think we have the power and we want to treat God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but Jesus our Redeemer especially, like a lucky amulet. Sometimes Christians get confused and they carry crosses and think, pull that out and kiss that or whatever uh, before I think a bad thing might happen. And that's like we can control Jesus' power. So it's hard for us to set aside our sinful nature because we want to carry him around in our pocket like a lucky and pull him back. Jesus, now you do this for me. This is what I need. That's the miracle. And stuff him back in and forget about it. He's ruling 24 hours a day, seven days a week for you. But he rules in, he, in what the ways he knows is best. So we see worthy is the lamb to receive power. He's taken back his godly power and he's using it. What you need to know is for you, for your benefit. Life is custom fit for you and his rule over all creation. The next is to receive riches. Now, when we think of riches, especially right now, since uh, Elon Musk has been in the news, was able to acquire $44 billion to buy Twitter, and I don't want to get in the politics of that. But when we think of riches, that's what we think of. We think of people like Elon Musk or J.D. Rockefeller, people who are wealthy. But the riches of God are more than just the money that we can fold and put in our back pockets and things like that. And we have to remember that as the Apostle Paul says, though he was rich, he became poor for our sake. Christ was rich because he's the God of all creation. He made all creation. He's the one who spoke. He's the spokesman for the Trinity. And he spoke those things into existence. All creation was his, yet he left that throne, that throne of power, and he left those riches to be born in a barn. To be born to a man who was a carpenter. And, and Joseph, even though, like you and I, he had a sinful nature, Joseph was a role model father. When it was time for the census to be taken, he had to go back to Bethlehem. He would have had a reputation for being a carpenter in Nazareth, but he'd be starting all over again in Bethlehem, the city of David, whom he was an ancestor of. And then when he is told, uh, get up, Herod wants to kill the baby and flee to Egypt. Now, Joseph, he can't even, he probably didn't even speak the language of the Egyptians. And he's trying to provide for the family God's entrusted to him. Jesus did not, was not born in a palace where he would be pampered, a pampered prince. Jesus set all that aside so that he could uh, redeem all, everybody, the rich and the poor, but so that he could suffer those things. So when you are suffering hardships, when you're suffering, Lord, I don't have enough money. And let's admit it. There's a certain level of money. We don't want money to be our God, but there's a certain level of money that when you're not making that level, life gets pretty stressful. But Jesus understands that. And yet he set aside uh, after... He set aside all those things when he took on human flesh and allowed him to suffer all those things. But we got to remember, all creation is his. He's rich in that way. He owns all creation and he's back on that throne. And his riches are not just the fact that he owns all creation. 
But think about the natural gifts that Jesus Christ, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit planned in all eternity for you to have. It often amazes me, and one of the things I like to, I really am amazed at, at the church I serve here in Casper is, I never have to worry when it snows. There's always some members, and it's usually more than one, who come and they run their snow blowers. They bring their own equipment and they plow our church parking lot and everything is ready for the worship service. Jesus is rich because he gave those men those natural talents and desires and they turn around in gratitude for salvation in Christ's rule. They use those natural talents as an offering to the Lord. I can go on with people who clean our church and everything as well, but let's move on. He's also given spiritual talents. Everybody has at least one spiritual gift. And you see that, that person who, when they're in the room, everybody tends to be happier. That person who has that wisdom to say, you know, in stewardship, we need to do this. Let's get, you know, and, and nobody else would have thought of it and stuff. He gives us those gifts and then we give them back. And, and yes, God gives us the ability, the natural gifts to earn the money we use to pay our bills and stuff like that. And for everybody, he gives them enough that they have enough when they want to return thanks to give an offering. Now, God doesn't need our money, but he gives us that to return thanks to him. So he receives riches both by, by taking on the full powers of his godhood, but also by people like you and I who have been redeemed and out of thanks, we give an offering to him simply. And he gives those things to us and gives us extra so that we can give that offering because he knows we want to thank him because he is a gracious, loving God. Next is to receive wisdom. And God's wisdom is not human wisdom at all because the cross is foolishness to the world. What kind of a God would come and hang naked and let the people he's trying to save spit on him and torture him to death? God of grace. That's God's wisdom. It's not the world's wisdom. The world's wisdom is rules like look out for number one. And it's amazing. People I've dealt with who are really good at looking out for number one often then wonder why people don't trust them. And why the only people that, that, that are their friends tend to try to use them and things like that. Jesus did not use all the powers of his godly wisdom. He is, as our catechism book says, the $20 word, theological word, omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. But he didn't use all of that all the time. And I, I always marvel, for example, when he's at the well with the Samaritan woman and he's talking to her. We'll never know until this, on this side of heaven, was it that he used a glimpse of his godly uh, omniscience to read her mind? Or was it because the Holy, he'd been anointed with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit was helping out where he wasn't using all the powers of his deity? And you can blow your mind just thinking about that. But he knew what to say. And... As a pastor, there are plenty of times it's like, I know the person needs the law, but I can't read their mind to know how heavily do they need the law? Do I need to swing the full force of the law or do I need to tap gently like when Jesus just looked at Peter when he denied him three times? And the same thing with the gospel. We always want to make people who know, who, who are repentant for their sins, we always want them to know that in Christ their sins are removed. But sometimes do we move in too quick? Sometimes do we think we, they need to suffer a little longer in these things? But Jesus knew it all. And in fact, G Jesus had that wisdom. And you and I have a sinful nature that gets in the way of our even learning the word of God. It finds sermons boring and everything. And literally when we take it to the word of God, we're torturing it to death. So yeah, it fights it. But Jesus didn't have that sinful nature. So, for example, when he's 12 years old and he stays behind for the extra Bible study following the Father's will, the rabbis are impressed. 
He picks up on it like that. He did that perfectly for you and I. But when he goes and ascends to the right hand after his resurrection, he takes up all of his godly wisdom again. So not only is he all-powerful, omnipotent, ruling over all creation for you, you and I often forget and we think God needs us to tell him. Lord, here's my problem and here's the solution I want you to give. And it amazes me how many times in my life our very loving God has said, Fred, your solution was so dumb, but I knew better than you. And in love for you, I gave you the right solution. I've learned that in my own private prayers, I just take the problem to the Lord. God is all-knowing. And sometimes we think he needs our solutions. No, he wants us to talk to him, but we can just say, Lord, things are rough at work. Amen. He knows everything. He already knows that and he already knows the solution. So he's received that wisdom again and he's using it to rule over all creation to bring you to and keep you in your faith. Next is to receive honor. Now the word after that is glory and there are two different words in the inspired Greek language Paul or John uses and there are two different words if you look at the original Hebrew, at the Hebrew language of the Old Testament too. So honor here is a dignity and a respect. You and I give that dignity and respect to him because we see him as the all-knowing, all-powerful, uh, all-present God who is using all of that to rule over creation for you and I. So that doesn't mean some Christians get confused and they think it's all about saying, Lord, look at how much I honor you. I honor you so much. Oh, I lift your name up in honor. Who are they really honoring? They're blowing their own whistle. That's not what we're talking about. And we have the opposite end of the spectrum where people can get so hung up in ritualism saying, I got to bow at just the right time and show the right, and then I'm truly honoring God. No, there's a careful balance there in accord with scripture. And believe it or not, the greatest honor we give to Jesus is when we worship him. But the way we worship him with the most honor is when we worship him because we believe that he did 100% of the work for our salvation. That's the greatest act of worship we give. And next is that word glory. And I mentioned the Hebrew earlier with honor because the Hebrew word that gets translated for the glory of the Lord, the Hebrew word kavod, is literally heaviness, like a heavy cloud. And, and the Greek word that John uses here is, is like shining splendor. The disciples got just a glimpse of that when Jesus uh, meets with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, lets a glimpse of his godly glory be shining out. There is a, a heaviness, a splendor, an intensity that we can't give to God. This is because he's God. And John saw that in the resurrected Lord, like his tongue was actually a sword in this picture, law and gospel. And he calls him the ancient of days and he's shining out whiter than my robe is like lightning. But you and I also glorify him again when we let him have all the glory. When we say he's the one who did all the work for my salvation. When we run to him for our problems. And... So we see worthy is the lamb to receive uh, power, riches, wisdom, honor, and glory. And then the last one in that list is blessing. Now, when God blesses you and I, boy, our, you know, he gives us salvation. He gives us forgiveness of sins. He gives us uh, earthly blessings as our good for, to, for our faith and to keep us in the faith and for us to glorify him with those blessings. So what can we do to God when we bless him? Literally, the, the Greek word that John uses is to speak well of. You and I speak well of Christ when we come to him and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I did it again. I can't help but do it. But I confess my sin to you and I know you forgive me. And we hear his words. I do forgive you. Then we can't keep it in, can we? 
We have to tell our neighbors, great news. Look at how Jesus has worked in my life. Look at the forgiveness he's given to me. And so we live to hear his word and to proclaim his word. When we proclaim his word, we are blessing him because we're telling others that Christ did the work you and I couldn't do. And in fact, when we say those words, worthy is the lamb. We're telling others all the good things Christ has done and and we're praising him. We're speaking well of him. And let us not forget, he made you a priest. See, he gave us the keys. When you see somebody who is sinning and they don't care, you get to be God telling them this sin is weighing you down. You get to be God proclaiming the law to them. Not that you are God, but you're his mouthpiece. I I don't want to, I apologize if I gave any confusion there. You get to be God's mouthpiece, his messenger, to tell them. Your sins are putting you in a lot of trouble. They're sending you straight to hell. But you also get to be his mouthpiece and saying, and so the blood of the lamb has washed your sin away. Whenever, whenever uh, the, the Holy Spirit has entered somebody's heart, they have that new mer- person that is clinging to Christ that believe Jesus did all the work for their salvation. The forgiveness of sins is theirs. And so, yes, we get to point out to others, worthy is the lamb. So we see, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. Now you are blessed because you are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. These are the true words of God. Amen.